Welcome to Small Talks, Big Ideas with Steve. I'm your host, Steve Fletcher. There are no two ways about it. Today's episode is longer than our typical episode, but I'm here to tell you that it is without a doubt one of my favorite conversations yet. Our guest, Jocelyn Patterson, who currently works alongside me as Low Country Local First's Good Enterprises Program Coordinator, is one of the newest members of the LLF team. And Jocelyn herself has her own entrepreneurial story to share. We'll learn how making a positive society-wide impact and designing beautiful original footwear converged to become her own personal North Star. And we'll follow the twists and turns of her personal and professional odyssey as she pursues that North Star. If you've ever thought about starting your own business or you've ever considered setting out on a new adventure of any kind and you're looking for a kindred spirit, Jocelyn's story might just serve as one of your North Stars. Her tireless trek from the world of finance to that of fashion was riddled with pit stops and potholes. Her tale will take us from South Carolina across the globe and back again, laying over in Europe, Africa, and South America along the way. But Jocelyn's story culminates, comes home, or should I say truly begins, right here in the low country of South Carolina, when she finally fulfills her dream to launch a sandal brand with a social mission and begins to help other fledgling entrepreneurs do the same. All right, we've got Jocelyn here today. I am so excited to be welcoming her onto the program. She is one of Low Country Local First's newest employees. She has been through programs from this organization, um, and she also has an incredible, unique entrepreneurial tale of her own to tell. Um, it's happening in real time. Her own personal entrepreneurship story is unfolding as we speak. So. I am incredibly privileged and fortunate to be here with you, Jocelyn. Thank you for carving out a little bit of your time. My first question for you is is wide open. I ask this of some of our guests. I just want you to kind of take the wheel and tell us a little bit about who you are from your perspective. So who would you say is Jocelyn Patterson in just a few sentences? Um, I am a woman of faith. I am someone who believes in doing what you love, whether that's personal or professionally. I am someone who believes in community and serving your community and uh, being a support system and providing resources. Um, part of that is how it's because how I was brought up. I'm from the Low Country. I'm originally from Georgetown, South Carolina. I was raised by my grandmother, who was a dedicated nurse for over 40 years, and she was also a cook and a baker. So I watch her serve in the community um, in a small rural town of South Carolina. Um, Georgetown is the third oldest city in the state, so there's a lot of history there. There's a lot of culture. Um, we're part of the low country. We're right in between Charleston and Myrtle Beach. Um, so the, the access to the coast and to that way of life is how I was brought up. Um, growing up, it, it, the culture I grew up in wasn't really, like I didn't grow up saying I am Gullah Geechee, hmm. you know? I, um, there were certain customs, traditions 
that I'm, I'm learning now, but growing up, I did not know that these cultures and traditions come from the Africans that were enslaved here in the South. And they were able to keep their African customs and traditions intact um, as far as language, as far as cooking, as far as uh, worshiping. Um, even though they were forced to take on a religion, they were forced to take on a language that they may not understand. Um, so I am a descendant of those ancestors. And every day when I wake up, I remember that. Beautiful, um, <laughs> you know, beautifully articulate and a compelling um, yeah. vantage point, I think. That's, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. And I said a few sentences, you gave me about 15, so I would have given <laughs> about 20, so you and I are of a, of a like mind in that. Yes, we sometimes are. Sometimes over-communication uh, is, is better. Um, but thank you for that. I think yeah. it's always important to to understand the, the lens through which our entrepreneurs and our partners and the folks who are associated with our organization here at a local economic development nonprofit mm -hmm. see the world and see their work and mm -hmm. see others' work. So, so Absolutely. thank you, thank you Absolutely. for that that story. Yeah. Um, every entrepreneur's story is different, so I want to jump right into it. Mm -hmm. Would you mind sharing with us what your product is, what your vision for your company is, what the name of the company is, mm -hmm. um, and take us as far back as you'd like. How okay. did it come to be? Why did you choose to do, to create, to share with the world? that which it is you are sharing and creating. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know sort of the genesis story of mm -hmm. your of your company. Um, the name of my company is Gola Sweetgrass. Um, the name Gola, I, in my research of learning about uh, the Gola Geechee culture, I learned and it's, it's not, I don't know if this is a fact or not, but uh, it said, it's to be said that Gola comes from the country Angola. And when you think of um, in uh, slavery, a lot of the slaves came from West Africa. Angola, Nigeria, Cameroon, Senegal, all of the Ivory Coast, um, those countries is, a, a, is where a lot of the uh, African slaves came from. So I just took the country Angola, hmm. and being that Gullah, they believe Gullah is derived from that. Um, they believe that the dialect and the accent, they were saying Gol Angola, but people took it as Gullah. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I um, learned in my history and my research. Um, so I took the name Gola in, in reference to Gala. And Gola Sweetgrass is a sandal footwear brand. Um, just to give a, a background, um, I worked in corporate America for a number of years. Um, I worked in banking uh, for Chase Bank. And it was never what I wanted to do, but I come from a family where, you know, the baby boomers generation, you know, you work a job for 20, 30 years, you retire, you know, the, that was where I, what my upbringing taught me. Sure. Um, and so when I graduated from college, it was, well, I got to get a job. <laughs> Sally Mae wants their money. <laughs> it's been six months and now I'm getting these loan um, uh, notices in the mail saying sure. it's time to repay my loans. So I got a job working as a bank, as a drive-through teller part-time and I worked my way up. Um, I worked my way up all the way up to branch manager. Wow. Um, I then left uh, 
the retail side of banking and went to the private side of banking and worked on the wealth management side. And where but, were you during all in the country? Where oh, I was in Atlanta. But Atlanta, state. Uh-huh. Okay. Atlanta, and then um, I was in Los Angeles okay. uh, for the last uh, five years of that career. Got it. It's never what I wanted to do. I was never passionate about it. I never saw myself, you know, working a nine to five type day job. But, you know, life throws, you know, curveballs mm-hmm. at you. And so you you have to survive. I had to provide some type of stability. Um, but I don't regret, you know, working in banking. Banking allowed me to purchase my first home at 25. Wow. Um, banking allowed me to build a really good, you know, 401k plan, get good benefits. So I was building that stability that I need, needed. But I was not happy. It was not, I was not passionate about what I was doing. And as we all know, you know, when 2007 happened and the whole big, too big to fail mm-hmm. mortgage crisis occurred in the country, it really changed the way banking was done. It was shifted from customer service to more about sales numbers, mm. how many accounts you have, how many checking accounts. And that's not what I was all about. Um, so I decided that I wanted to leave and do my own thing. And I knew that I wanted to live a purpose-driven life. And so this quest of, you know, 13 years ago of me entering into this purpose-driven life, the first thing I did was quit my day job, quit my nine-to-five job. Hmm. Um, But in the meantime, I did start an online shoe store. Um, I love shoes. I, I knew I needed to take something I was passionate about and make a profit. And so shoes was something that I loved. I have more shoes in my closet than I do clothes. Um, I will spend $100, $200 on a pair of shoes and then go to the thrift store and buy an outfit and spend $10 for that outfit. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but because I really believe, you know, impressions, first impressions are everything. Um, if you look good, if you feel good, then you'll give off that 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 confidence sure. in, um, to others. Also, my wife and I are big thrifters, and we 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 <laughs> thrift a lot. But shoes and hats, we sort of steer clear of, <laughs> and underwear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we maybe have different minds when it comes to what to and to not thrift, and maybe based on different philosophies. But we yeah. we too choose what we are in our thrift. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I uh, started selling shoes on Facebook Marketplace, okay. and this is in 2011. So e-commerce okay. is just kind of hitting the scene. Um, okay. It's just kind of like you know becoming a thing on the on the internet, along with social media. Um, so I started selling shoes. At the time, I was living in LA, so I would go downtown Los Angeles, buy shoes wholesale, and sell them online. Oh, okay. In addition, I was also doing shoe parties. Um, that which was another popular thing. A lot of people were doing jewelry parties with certain uh, brands that you know, yeah. like Avon sure. and Mary Kay Cosmetics, all sure. those different types sure. of uh, companies. And so I took that idea and applied it to shoes. Interesting. So I ha- started having shoe parties at people's homes. So I would bring my shoes to my whole setup presentation. And um, the host of the party, well, you know, I would give them like some kind of percentage off the shoes that I would sell. They would invite all their friends or invite their coworkers, and I would sell shoes. And so that was my um, entrance into the footwear industry. Um, I started attending trade shows, um, the magic trade show, all the different trade shows that you hear about. And I started noticing that every vendor Every brand pretty much had the same style shoes. Whatever was in trend, whatever was, you know, forecasting for trends, that's what they were selling. And it just became the same shoe, the same shoe, just a different brand. 
And I really started getting interested, well, how can I design a shoe? And at the time, I was really interested in designing a comfortable black pump. Because okay. I just left corporate America, sure. you know, wearing suits, uh, business suits, women always got to, you know, look presentable, like sure. I said before. But, you and know. At this point, you're buying wholesale and then you're reselling those shoes mm-hmm. in a strategic way. But are you then also kind of like brand? Do you have a brand at this point? I do. I do okay. have a brand. Um, it's called One Soul. Okay. And it okay. was Soul was spelled S O L E. Got so it. that was okay. my first business. So it was called One Soul Shoes. Got it. I love it. Yeah. And so when I would go to these trade shows and everyone will always ask me, because I came from the corporate um, scene, was, can you find me a comfortable black pump? I'm tired of wearing these shoes that are uncomfortable or, you know, having to switch to flats in less than an hour because your feet starts started to hurt. Sure. So that truly was what I was what, what I was looking for when I went to these trade shows. Um, but. What happened is I had a conversation with a designer at one of these uh, vendor booths, and I just kind of asked her, like, how did you get into this business? And she, you know, I said, where did you go to design school? And she was like, I didn't. She's like, I don't have a background in design. And so she was like, my background is in radio, television, film. And I was like, well, how did you get into design? Like, how did you get into shoe design? And she told me about this program in Milan called Ars Tutoria. Hmm. And it's a footwear school. And they basically teach you the development and pattern making of footwear. And so she gave me the information. I did a little research on it. And in the end of 2012, I decided, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to want to learn how to design shoes. Then it seems like this is the program. So I cashed in a few CDs, I applied for the program, um, took some money from my retirement account to pay for the class. And in December of 2012, I moved to Milan, Italy and lived there for six months and learned how to pattern develop footwear. I learned how to sketch, I learned how to create a collection. Um, And then on top of that, I got an opportunity to live in a beautiful country, um, beautiful city, Milan. Had you been to Italy before? Um, Prior to that, no, I've never been to Italy. And so I'm, you know, six months prior, I had just quit my job, uh, just cashed in some retirement, some CDs, took, and so you can imagine my family, my mom and my grandmother are like, you're going where? And you're doing what? (laughs) And you quit working what? So they were very nervous about my decisions because I've always did what was necessary. I've always done what was required of me. And so for me to, and I always had a plan. Mm-hmm. So for me to just up and quit and not have a job and not have a plan and I'm telling them, oh, um, I have this online shoe store, one sold, and my grandma's looking like, but you're not making any money like to survive. <laughs> So it took them, it took some convincing, um, but they knew it was also a good opportunity for me Mm -hmm. to do this. So I moved to Italy. I met um, in my classroom. There were me and two other people from the United States. Okay. Everyone else was from other countries. How big was Um, the class? It was probably a class of 30. Okay. Um, Class of 30, three people from the U.S., some people from Norway, Denmark, Germany, Russia, um, Korea, like my total um, patchwork. Yeah. Wow. Cool. And the common goal we all had is that we were all uh, we all love footwear. We all okay. love shoes. Some of the uh, people in my class 
came because the company sent them. Some came because they wanted to get in the industry like me. And some were just artistic, creative people that were probably, you know, in fashion school but needed to take a course to learn shoe, shoe design and shoe development. So it was just a mixture of all of us in this class wanting to learn. And for six months, I learned pretty much everything there was about making a shoe. And after that, I came back to the States. I was like, okay, what do I do now? Because I don't know anyone in this yeah. industry. Um, and in between can, can we pause time, there for one second? Sure. What does it take to make a shoe? I mean, in, um, a, in a nutshell. What are, what are some of the core mm, components to designing and building? And we'll talk more about yeah. kind of the marketing and branding later. Um, I will say probably the average cost. It all depends on where you're getting a shoe made. So, you know, if you're getting a shoe made in Italy... Um, so Italy is pretty well known and mm-hmm. prestigious for shoemaking, um, and they are very quality made shoes uh-huh. in Italy um, versus China or Singapore. And not to take anything away from the productions there, but you know they produce mass. Sure, totally different so supply chain. Yes, models. totally different supply chain. At least uh, you're not going to get the full leather sole or a leather okay. shoe. Um, so it's, it's all about your sourcing. So okay. sourcing materials. So you're sourcing for leather. You're sourcing for a sole. You're sourcing for a heel. So with all those com- components coming together, and I'll speak for my shoe, it cost me $35 to make my sandals. And that's a probably about average. Um, if you choose, And I didn't choose the top quality leather. I didn't choose the top quality of, of any component. Sure. But I did choose a good quality. Okay. Um, so average cost. And that's just for women. Now, okay. men Is are different. Is it for different. materials? And, it's or for the, the leather, okay. the construction, okay. and, the and the, the whole thing. And what are like yeah. the steps of construction? If I, if I don't know anything mm-hmm. about constructing shoes, which, full disclosure, I don't. <laughs> if someone's listening in and they're like, man, building out your own company, it requires a number of pieces of business acumen, but it also yeah. requires some knowledge about like the creative work itself, particularly mm-hmm. when you're producing a product like a shoe. So yeah. walk us through for someone who doesn't yeah. understand how yeah. a shoe comes together. Like what are the mm-hmm. steps to building an actual shoe yeah. that put, people put on their feet? Uh, first step is the idea of what you want to uh, design. And um, that can be uh the style or type of shoe. Do you want to do a sandal, a boot, a loafer, a flat, a ballet flat? Um, and then it, you go to sketching, a pencil sketch. Okay. Um, you would do just like any. I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Uh, uh, I don't draw. That. I just. I wasn't gifted with that, so I had to be trained to okay. learn how to sketch. Some people have a natural drawing ability, so to sketch is very simple for them. For me, it was like, okay, this is a lot of uh, scrunching of paper thrown away and starting all over again because I just couldn't get the lines right. Sure. So it all starts with a sketch. Okay. And it could be a pencil sketch. It can be a color sketch. And you take this flat piece of, of, tech, of, of a sketch and you have to turn it into a 3D. Right. It's like magic. Yeah, yeah. So thank God for CAD um, and, and Photoshop and all those different technologies. You can take this sketch and what I learned is the sketch, because I also took CAD lessons as well. Um, the sketch then becomes 3D. So then you have to apply the technical aspects of your sketch. And that is what they use to make your shoe in the factory. Interesting. So once you apply, in the technical aspects, what I mean when I say that is, 
okay, the, the pencil sketch looks good, mm -hmm. but now we're going to have to apply how many millimeters is it going to be before the shoelaces are? How many millimeters now is the sole going to be? You have to allow room from error, so you might want to come out one centimeter because when you blast the shoe mm -hmm. underneath and then you tack it, you know, and then you put the sole on it, all that comes into that technical drawing. Got it. So if your technical 3D drawing is not right, and then you go and get your leather, and based off of those measurements, you're gonna have a really uh, a not wearable shoe. Got it. So those technical aspects. So it goes from a sketch. Got it. Then you go to a technical drawing. Okay. And now you got a source. So now you have to source for your leather. A lot of things, the if you get with a good manufacturer or a good shoe factory, a lot of the they have in-house. So a lot of the uh, sourcing materials that you need. Pretty much, already they can, there. They already there. Got it. They probably already got a relationship with a, a with a sole company. They got a relationship with this company. Okay. So they pretty much will build that into their price huh. um, for your production, which is what happened to me. Got it. Now some places, some factories don't. You gonna have to go and source all your own materials and bring it all to them, and that's what they call a tech pack, a technical pack. Okay. Technical pack means that all the materials that it makes that this factory needs to make the shoe you put is all together. Interesting. So, yeah, and then from there, it's then, like a it's like a um, a blue apron meal to your door. It's got all <laughs> the ingredients there. Yeah. I was I was thinking of a of a local version of blue apron. If you're out there listening, I apologize. A and B, call in. We'll get you signed up for LLF membership. But, but there's B Minton. They do kind of a to your door package of boutique goods uh, and homewares. But so, anyway, yeah. yes, yeah, okay. It so it's like they've got everything. They're putting it together. They've sourced everything already. Mm -hmm. Your sketch goes from 2D to 3D, mm -hmm. and now you've made like a prototype, presumably. Exactly. Okay. So now you make your prototype. Um, the prototype allows the time for you to see what works, what doesn't work. Um, you, I had to get a fit model um, so they can try it on, so they can walk, so they, so I can see how, you know, if there's any changes I need to make or anything like that. That is the most important part because if you don't get that correct, corrected and then you go into a mass production mm -hmm. and then you catch, oh, wait, I should have moved the strap maybe a millimeter oh, over because now the strap is not staying on the sure. foot. You're screwed, like you're screwed. So those early developments and those early stages of designing your shoe is very important. Like for my brand, Gola Sweetgrass, I've, I went through four prototypes before I got to my last prototype. Wow. Um, some of it was me changing the style of the sandal, um, less, less of a flip-flop thong, more of a strap mm -hmm. over, because okay. um, it didn't work with the Sweetgrass that I have on my, sh on my sandals. Um, but yes, uh, another great thing is to find a production manager or someone who can speak the factory language. Um, I went to, I did not study design. I went to school in Italy. So mm -hmm. there are some technical things. There are some aspects of producing and manufacturing that I'm just not aware of. Sure. So I, I found someone, a production manager through Low Country Local First Good Enterprises Community Business Academy. Shout out. <laughs> Shout out. Through my business coach, Jeff, um, he knew someone in Guatemala that uh, knew someone that had a shoe, a shoe uh, factory. Interesting. Yeah. So um, I was able to meet uh, through Google Meets, through virtual, um, the production guy. And right off the bat, I just felt like, okay. He knows what he's talking about. Good vibes. Yeah, I definitely got good vibes from him. 
And he, you know, he's from Guatemala, but, you know, he lived in New York. The shoemaker that when I went to Guatemala to meet him is from Milan. Oh, wow. Knew of my school. Small world. Knew of my teacher that taught me. But he moved, he married someone, he he married a Guatemalan, so he moved to Guatemala, but he is from Italy. Okay. So when I knew that I was, he was an Italian shoemaker, I was like, oh, yeah, this is it. I've hit the jackpot. Like, this is it. I got a good production manager. But yeah, definitely um, all those things come into play, and that's just on the design side of running my business. Right, right. Wild. Then the business side of running my business is marketing. You know, things we're talking about before uh, is getting my name out there, raising Mm -hmm. awareness, um, setting up a brand strategy that that works for me and also, you know, uh, brings awareness to my business and to the Gullah Geechee tradition into Sweetgrass Basket. So... The, the I wear many hats. Yeah, sure, I imagine. <laughs> you know, wear many hats. And when I started this journey um, 12 years ago, I had no idea that this is where I would land. And I, I didn't realize that it would take longer than what I wanted. Of course, we always want instant gratification. So I immediately thought, like, when I came back from Italy, that this is it. I'm going to get the job in the footwear industry. I'm going, you know, I'm going to be doing mm-hmm. this and doing that. And none of that happened. Um, I came back to Italy, moved to New York, and I started interning. Okay. I am 33 years old at this time, and I am interning unpaid for a designer who was well-established in industry. She's uh, designed for different designers like Calvin Klein, um, Nine West, and so she was starting her own brand. And so uh, what I did was when I got back from Italy, I kind of just got on LinkedIn typed in Arsatoria and mm-hmm. pulled up, you know, everything, uh, everyone that went to that school sure. and saw a name. And I just started sending cold emails out um, to these people that I saw on LinkedIn. And these and are s- fellow students from the school? Or? Past students okay. from the school. Got it. They're oh, past okay. students from the so school. So like alumni, alumni. From, from the school you went mm-hmm. to. You're like, let me see who I can make some connections with. Exactly. That's exactly what Got I it. did. And someone replied back to my email. Huh. And so I sent her my resume. She was like, this is awesome, but I don't have anything here for you. She said, we're not really hiring now. She said, but there is a designer that lo- that's on the floor below me that is looking for an intern. Hmm. And immediately I was like, intern? Right. Not what I was looking for, that's but... not exactly okay. what I was looking for. I was looking for a paid job because sure. I'm running out of money. <laughs> like, I've gone through all my savings, almost all my savings, and I'm sleeping on my sister's couch, right. and right. I am a nanny because my, my stepsister had just had a child, so I was helping watch her child right. going into Manhattan. Now, she would your, cover... Your footwear is looking good, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, shoes are on point. Yeah, shoes are I'm always on point. I'm trying to figure point. out the rest. I'm just trying to figure out the rest. <laughs> exactly. So I interned for her unpaid. She would provide lunch for me every day and then provide train fare for me to get back and forth. But Okay. And, and if anyone knows, living in New York... Um, $100 goes. As soon as you break that $100 bill, it's gone. <laughs> yeah. From eating, from train, yeah. from yeah. Uber, you know, from, you know, just getting around New York, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. Um, so money was going really quickly out of my savings account. And, but I knew that this 
is this may be an opportunity to put me in this space that I need to be mm-hmm. to network because sure. once you put me in a space, then I'm good. Like sure. I, I got I got I got the rest of mm-hmm. that. So she, I met um, I met her. I interviewed with her. She was impressed with my CV. She also went to Arsatoria, so she's very well aware of my capability and the training and the education that I received. And I interned her for four months. Um, it was good and bad. She wasn't ready out per se, I think, to bring out her design, but she had an investor that gave her five hundred thousand oh, dollars. So wow. I think that kind of rushed her a little bit okay. to put out a collection and put out a put her brand out. But I don't think she was ready. And then, you know, office politics. Um, sure. I'm an African American woman. I'm working. I'm thirty. I'm two years older than them. Um, so a lot of things played where I just felt like I was not safe in this space anymore. Okay. But in the meantime, um, I was able to network in this building. This building was all shoe designers. It was all brands. Oh, wow. That, yeah. So on the fifth floor, it was a brand called Sam Edelman. On the sixth floor is another brand. So I started networking out of the office. Okay. I started meeting people that worked for other brands. And when I knew that this internship was coming to an end because... I pretty much was like ready to move on. You were bringing it to an end. Yeah, because <laughs> I was about to bring it to an end. Like I was planning my exit strategy. Sure. Um, uh, one of the guys that worked in the warehouse for Sam Edelman, he told me about he has a friend because uh, I would confide in him, you know, sure. about what was going on because he would see things like why did they they just left you out of that or why weren't you included on that or you know things like that. Sure. And so he was telling me... He became hey, a confidant of yours. Yeah, he became a confidant. Yeah, someone. Yeah, exactly. So he was telling me about a uh, brand in Kenya. I don't know how he knew about this, but he said, hey, they're looking for someone to bring their shoes to the U.S. Does that hmm. sound like something you're interested in? And I was like, right now, I, could, I would be interested in anything right now. <laughs> so he put me in touch with them. Cool. And I sent my email, sent my resume. and What I were they s- called? They were called Bukisi Rooks. Bukisi Rooks. Yes, okay. Bukisi Rooks. Um, I forgot what it meant, but it does mean something. Cool. Um, and so I did a Skype call with them, and I sent them a like a faux marketing type uh, plan, like what I would do for them if okay. they if I because if they will allow me to represent them as a sales rep, an independent sales rep. Got it. And they sold. They were like, yes. So um, they hired me on contract, and that was pretty much my first entrance into the footwear industry. It was through this brand and making sure this brand get into the U.S. market. Now, I I knew no one. Hmm. I didn't know anyone, but I said, well, let me send some emails out like I did before. Hit the LinkedIn trail again. That's exactly what I did. There's one theme that's emerging already. I'm sure our (laughs) listeners are seeing it as well, though, but you definitely make lemonade out of lemons. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you kind of find inroads where maybe others wouldn't. Yep. Um, and so that's what I did. Cool. I got on LinkedIn again and I started looking um, more specifically for the New York market of stores, of businesses. Um, this is a brand, African central centric focus brand. So um, their shoes were made of African prints. So when you look at all the different African prints that you see around, they made that into a shoe. Wow. Cool. Um, like the Ankara print, the mud cloth, the Kinti print, the Kente print, oh, all wow. those different prints that were they developed and made into a shoe. 
So I started reaching out to all the African central focused businesses. Okay. And you're from Jersey. You've crossed a bridge a couple of times in New York. That, sure, okay. sure thing. <laughs> I worked in New York City. I worked in Midtown for a couple of years. Okay, so okay. you know, so Brooklyn. Brooklyn has a very yes, strong I in and Brooklyn Harlem. For like six years. Yeah, yeah, they have a very strong African yes. central network. So yes. does Harlem. So I started kind of just going through these to these brick and mortar stores. Just or cold just, calling and just, just cold canvassing. calling, just sending emails like, "Hey, I have this brand. Um, I did a little marketing pack thing with them, cool. um, and I got an email, and it was Calabar Imports. And Calabar Imports, um, they work with villages in Africa to help. I guess it's like a fair trade, a world fair trade okay. type of thing. Interesting. Um, where the villages will make products and then they will sell it in Brooklyn. Okay. And so I, they were having a pop-up shop event and I signed on as a vendor for Bukisi Rooks. And they sent me, I believe, 20 pairs of shoes and I sold all of them. Wow. But wow. then those, that makes a statement. Yeah. There were, uh, it was three weekends of pop-up shops. So every, and Calibor Imports is like a art, um, all the arts for that's uh, fine art, okay. visual, multimedia. It's like this collection house of coming together. I don't know if it's still in New York and in Brooklyn anymore. Like artisanally but, made yes, works yes. and sculptures mm-hmm. and yeah, home, home decor, but the, home that, decor, that which is all, created, yeah. which is made uniquely. Exactly. Okay. And so they would do these pop-up shops okay. at night. It was like a bazaar, like a pop-up okay. bazaar yeah. where you were able to sell Got your it. things. So they yeah. have like a physical like emporium where mm-hmm. many of these products reside, but they yep. will open it up uh, weekly or regularly for folks to come and pop up. And yep introduce their regular clientele to even more unique artifacts and products. And so I did that. Um, It was, I believe it was a six-week thing. Every weekend, they'll do a pop-up bazaar. And so they were... They were happy, I imagine, with that. Yes. They were (laughs) ecstatic. Um, They were, like, ecstatic. So it started from that. And then networking at these bazaars, they told me about, well, you should do your pop-up at this other place in Harlem. And so I was like, oh, okay. So I researched about that, paid the vendor fee, and now I'm moving them into Harlem. So now their market is moving from Brooklyn to Harlem, and they are ecstatic. They are happy. You know, they're able to get in the U.S. market. Now, unfortunately, on their end, like I said, Mm -hmm. if you don't have good production, you're not going to last as long as you want sure the first collection of shoes that they sent me um i sold 20 pairs over that four week uh time of the bazaar but the second collection um they used a different manufacturer okay and it screwed them up majorly Mm. and so what happened was the What's the term? Um, the quality wasn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. And another issue that they did not realize is that they used a different size grade. They didn't use this U.S. size grade. Oh, so people couldn't find their size. They couldn't find their sizes. Hmm. So when I got the shoes and it's saying a size eight, it's really a size six. Oh, jeez. So it's a big discrepancy. Yeah, and so on their end, but I worked with them for a whole year be, uh, to sell that first collection, and then when the second collection came in, that's when they were like they didn't have the funding that they did have. They had to cut some corners. Got it. You know, they're in Kenya. I'm here in the states. Sure. So it was for them. They had to like regroup. Right. And so my contract ended with them. Okay. But by that time, I was kind of like you know. 
making everyone's dreams come true. <laughs> what about me? You know, what about me? And so I decided that, that this was in 2014, uh, 2015. And so um, I pretty much ran out of money. I did get my last, um, I, I was considered a freelance, independent sales rep. I was pretty much freelancing. Okay. Um, I did get my last check for them. That kind of helped, helped me a little mm-hmm. bit. But I just wasn't making ends meet in New York anymore. I was still sleeping on my sister's couch. I could not, you know, really afford to move an apartment. Sure. That was, well, you know, 2800 yeah. You must be studio. thinking, did you ever think, man, I, I got to go back to banking. As much as I don't want to, I need to get back to stability. Or where was your mind at this no. point? No, okay. uh-uh, because <laughs> I had that no... That ship had sailed. Yeah, that ship had sailed. Um, I had no... Mm-mm. I had already took the risk sure. and survived. Okay. So it was like, for me, it was like, because my biggest worry was I'm going to quit a job and, sure. and that check, that paycheck every two weeks that we all depend on, yes. it's no longer going to be there. Right. But when I quit that job, then the 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 two pay, the two paycheck every two weeks just kind of just went away. It was mm-hmm. just like the risk I took, you know, it was a big risk, but it was the reward was just so much greater. And I felt at that time, it was like, I, I have to keep going. There sure. is no going back. Right. You know? I'm almost there. I'm like, almost no there. turning back There's now. no turning back now. That's really how I felt. And I knew, and so I decided to move back to South Carolina. You know, my grandmother, in the midst of all of this, had passed away um, maybe a few weeks before I left to go to Italy. So it was a grieving time for me when I was in Italy as well. Mm-hmm. So, I, of course, I channeled that into learning and absorbing everything, the culture, the food, the language, everything. Um, but when I, when she passed away, she left me a, a house. And so I was like, well, I'm up here and sleeping on my sister's couch, you know, barely making it right now. And so I made a decision. I'm going to move back to South Carolina. I want to design my own shoes. That's pretty much what I said. And so, um, I left, I came back here and I came to Georgetown, but I was broke. And so I was like, well, I got to make some money. <laughs> so although I did not want to go to banking, I did know that I need to make some money (laughs) and I did know that I needed to, I know that I wasn't going to, you know, that salary that I had Mm -hmm. in banking is gone. You know, I'm going to have to start from the bottom and work my way up. Um, And I knew that I didn't want to go the Horry County, Myrtle Beach side. I figured Charleston would probably be better for pay, better for experience, just better for for me. Sure. Um, And so healthcare is a big industry here. And so I was like, okay, well, I need to find a job. So I applied and found a job at a doctor's office and still not realizing or still not knowing exactly what it is I want to design. I just know that I want something with my name on it. Okay. And so... Interesting. um, But still footwear at this point. Still footwear. Right. I'm still in... You don't know what the style is or the model exactly. You're not sure what it'll look like, but you know that you, in some way, shape or form, have been put on this planet to make shoes with your name on it. (laughs) Exactly. Ding, ding, ding. Got it. You got it. Um, So one day on, so I was living in Georgetown driving to Mount Pleasant. Okay. I did that for like a year and a half, a year and a half. Okay. Just that commute back and forth. Doctor's office was in Mount Pleasant. Doctor's office was in Mount Pleasant. Um, And, but of course, as always, the nine to five, I was like, okay, I'm not going to be able to do this for a long periods of time. So I have to make something happen. Something has to go. Let's move. (laughs) Um, so on the weekend, I decided to go downtown Charleston just to take in the sights. You know, it's been a while since I've returned, you know, from living in Atlanta, living in L.A. and everywhere else. So I really wanted to kind of take in the city and, 
you know, just kind of see what, what Charleston has now. Because it's been years sure. since I've been back. It's been 20 plus years. And as I'm walking downtown, walking down Market Street, I see all of these sweetgrass basket vendors. Mm. And I'm just like, oh, my God, wow. You know, like, these are beautiful baskets. But not only that, when I would come into work from Mount Pleasant or leave work, I would see them in Mount yep, Pleasant right, on, sure. was on the 17 yep, or in Hollandog. Mm-hmm. So, you know, oh, those are beautiful baskets. Oh, I remember my grandmother. You know, like, those type of memories started coming sure, in. Sure, sure. So I stopped in Charleston, went downtown, and I asked the girl, I said, how much is this basket? And she said, 175. I said, whoa, 175. Like, I didn't show that to her. (laughs) I kind of was like, oh, okay, all right, all right. But in the back of my mind, I was like, 175. I swear the basket was not even. It was not. So the gears are turning. Yeah. Immediately, I was like, light bulb moment. I was like, oh, my God. Okay. I can design a shoe. I can, you know, uh, educate and preserve the Gullah Geechee tr- mm. uh, history. Um, like, everything just started, like, mm-hmm. my mind just started moving, which happens when I get this idea, and I just can't stop until I get it all figured out. And for listeners who don't know, sorry for interrupting mm-hmm. Jocelyn, but just want to pause for listeners who maybe aren't from Charleston. Um, what is the connection between uh, Sweetgrass and Gullah Geechee? Okay. So Sweetgrass uh, baskets, um, and this is through my research um, that I found out that when um, the slaves were working on the rice fields, the rice plantations or rice fields, they needed something to put the rice in. And so being that they are descendants from, you know, Africa, um, they already had an art of taking sweet grass, taking palm, taking palm leaves, bulrush, whatever the elements were at that time um, on the, on these plantations. So the slaves would, you, would make these baskets to put the rice in. Okay. Um, rice, what other uh, foods or other things that they were using, using. And at the time, and it was the men that were making the baskets and then using them for the put the rice, for cultivation of the rice. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the basket making comes from. Um, it is an art. I consider it to be an art. Sure, they're beautiful. Uh, yeah, but basket, the basket making was passed down for generations. So for over 400 years, um, this is an art that has been passed down from generation to generation to generation since slavery. Um, And so the importance of that is within the Gullah Geechee culture. And just, just, just to recap, the Gullah Geechee culture is a culture amongst descendants of slaves that lived along the coast. Mm. And the corridor is from Wilmington, North Carolina, all the way down to Jacksonville, Florida, wow. along the coast. And um, especially around Savannah, uh, Hilton Head area, they're called Sea Islands. So they were able to separate themselves from the mainland. So because they were separated from the mainland, they weren't. They were able to preserve their culture and reserve mm-hmm. their tradition because they didn't have any interactions or any interferences from the slave masters, from... Um, from the the states or the they were called they were called something else back then they weren't called cities what were they called um, parishes okay. or uh, 
can't think of the term. But anyways, because they were isolated, they were mm-hmm. able to preserve their culture. Okay. And sweetgrass basket making is one of those cultures, okay. along with food, along with the Gullah dialect. I mean, sure. if you're down here in Charleston, a lot of people think, a lot when you hear a black person talk, it almost sounds like they're from the islands. Um, or almost sounds like they're from Jamaica. That's that Gullah dialect that sure. they have. Um, so all huh. of that, including the sweetgrass basket. So to preserve this history, when if you ever come to Charleston for some of your listeners and you see these women sitting and they're weaving these baskets, just know that that is something that has been passed on, and it's not a, it's not a lot of families left in anymore. Hmm. Um, but it was something that's been passed on for over 400 years wow, in yeah. our community. Yeah. Powerful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Okay. So you see these baskets, you identify immediately, wow, these are expensive or way more expensive than I initially thought mm-hmm. they were. They're, they're beautiful. And now mm-hmm. this has moved your trajectory in a slightly new direction. So yes. talk about now where you're headed. So now I'm like, okay, this is, uh, and at the same time, I believe the Smithsonian, um, the African-American Smithsonian Institute had just opened in D.C. Okay. And I read an article that there is a sweetgrass um, exhibit. Interesting. And so I said, okay, we're starting to get some, some notoriety here. Like, they're starting to pay attention. Hmm. Um, and, and so it led to me, and what I've always said before is my purpose-driven life Um how can I take this 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 love that I have for shoes and this love now that I have for designing and really raise awareness for the sweetgrass basket making? And that was in 2016 when mm. all of this happened. And so I spent a, a year, maybe a little over a year, researching. Hmm. I would stop at every basket maker wow. and just sit and have a conversation with them wow. and learn cool. about their family Fantastic. and learn and, and men and, and over time more women started to basket make. But in my research, I found that it was the men that first started basket weaving okay. these baskets. So I would go and sit under the hut, the little shack that they had yeah. selling their baskets yeah. and just sit there and just soak in the storytelling. Cause that's what, 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 uh, what, what my research, what I focused on was the storytelling, sure. because these stories that, you know, that are being told um, are very important to the history of Charleston and just to the history of, of the U.S. period. And so I would sit and talk with these women. You know, they would say, oh, I'm fourth generation this. I'm descendant of the Manigolds. I'm descendants of this family. I'm sure. descendants of that family, all raised in Mount Pleasant and from Mount Pleasant. And so... I would, you know, ask them questions about basket making. Um, the first couple of months, it was just me taking in the culture and the history of Gullah Geechee. Because wow. like I said, although I, I'm from here, it's right. not like I grew up saying, I'm Geechee, I'm Geechee, I'm sure. Geechee. Okay. I just knew that there right. were certain cultures and traditions and things that I was that my grandmother taught me. Um, that I later learned, later learned that those customs that I grew up in, all comes from the Gullah Geechee culture. One, Sundays is considered the day of rest. I know for some people, Saturdays. For Jewish people, I believe Saturday mm-hmm. is the day of Sabbath. But, And in my house, there was no washing clothes on Sundays. There mm. was no, you had to go to church. If you didn't go to church, you had to go to Sunday school. Um, there was no washing clothes. There was no um, manual labor. And what I've learned, what I learned from that is, um, for slaves, Sundays were days off for them. Hmm. 
And so they would either have to go to church with their slave masters or some um, plantations, some slave masters would allow their slaves to worship on their own. But majority of times, so that was a day of rest for them. They didn't have to work in the fields. They didn't have to pick cotton. They didn't have to do any of those, you know, massive uh, 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 forced labor. And so not knowing that that's where that came from. Right. So you kind of grew up within Gullah Geechee culture to a degree, but just didn't have names for all of these. Didn't have names for all of these. It wasn't until I started researching as I became an adult and understanding that certain things that my grandmother taught me or instilled in me came from the Gullah Geechee culture. Um, So for months, I would just meet with them. And then I started to befriend some of the women and once I started befriending them once they gained my trust and knew that I'm just not here trying to just get this information and then go and monetize it or market it in any way so I wanted to build that trust first so once I started building the trust I started opening up more about well how can I put this in a shoe well what what are things that I can and cannot do with making a shoe because my initial is I wanted the soul to be sweet grass interesting okay um, and so what I learned is the sweet grass regardless if you use bulrush you use pine needles or things like that if it's it's not malleable enough to twist and turn to, to put in a sole and so it went from hmm. how am I going to construct this shoe and so I, I befriended the sweetgrass um, basket maker. She was very supportive and was just so excited for what I was trying to do once I started opening up and telling her what I wanted to do. Sure. Because she felt like this would be a way for the youth, for the, the young market to understand. Because what she started saying, telling me is that this is not being passed down to the youth. They don't have an interest for it or... You know, basket making sure. is too much. It takes too much because you sure. have to go out and find the materials. You have to go out right. to the marshes. You got to go out to the land. Right. Um, takes a lot. I'd imagine it takes immense amounts of foresight yeah. and meticulousness and mm-hmm. patience mm-hmm. and attentiveness. Yeah. Interesting. And, yeah. and we live in such an ephemeral world, right? Yeah. It's like video games or sweetgrass basket weaving. Exactly. Mm. So she was explaining to me how this is, it's almost becoming a lost art because it's not being passed down from gener- generation from generation. Interesting. Another aspect that I learned in my research is, and this is before I even thought of a sketch, before I even thought of how I'm going to produce this, um, is that a lot of heirs' properties are being bought up, Hmm. especially in the Hilton Head, St. Helena Island, Paris Island, those Buford. Um, So uh, the women and men are losing where they can go Hmm. to get the materials to make the sweet guys baskets because they're being bought up. The highways are being put on there, Um, especially in Hilton Head. um, They have a, it was a, I think they're still fighting. A lot of uh, heirs' properties, you know, the deeds get lost, uh, records get burned, city halls move. Or Um, deeds don't look the way they're suddenly supposed to look by the current government. Mm -hmm. Or for one reason or another, folks are being disenfranchised, unentitled to their land that has been theirs for generations. Exactly. So a lot of that is happening, was going on. So her, her telling me all of this is we have to find other ways to celebrate this history. And so the more I learned from her, the more I was like, what better way to attract a youthful, a younger market than shoes? Because 
now, you know, whether you're a sneakerhead or if mm-hmm. you like stilettos or if you like flats, sure. it's a more youthful market. Yeah. And people are willing yeah. to spend money on those Jordans yeah. from shoes 90. Shoes are huge. Yeah. Everybody yeah, needs yeah. shoes. Everyone needs shoes. And what better way to put uh, a sweetgrass on a uh, shoe um, to attract a youth market? Another mm-hmm. thing she mentioned in, in this research is that they get a lot of, it's a lot of tourism here in Charleston, of course, you know. Sure. And so many people who may want to purchase a sweetgrass basket may not be able to take it back with them, you know, due to TSA requirements when you're flying. Hmm. So I also started to look at it like, wow, this would be a great thing for someone to purchase. It may, they, may, they may not be able to afford a sweetgrass basket. They may not be able to take, because a lot of our uh, tourism comes from international. You know, we get a lot right, of people from right. Germany, from France, um, right. from all the European nations and, and beyond. So um, a lot of people come to Charleston for the Spoleto Festival, right, for right. all these different types of food and wine events, sure. things like that. Um, so we have a very good tourism market. So I didn't think of that. So customs theoretically could prevent someone from traveling back to their country of origin with like a big sweetgrass basket. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So all these things I started factoring in on my design and what I wanted to do. And then she was willing to work with me in getting this design aesthetic up. Because first I started with the flat and, you know... It just went back and forth, but sure. me conversing with her and knowing what I can do and what I cannot do allowed me to be more to create. So, like I said before, I started with just a simple pencil sketch, hmm. and I started to pay attention to what uh, she was telling me um, in my research. And so the sweetgrass medallions that are on my sandals mm-hmm. is the beginning of a basket. So the circle or the medallion or whatever you want to call it represents the beginning of the basket before it coils around. And And for folks who haven't yet checked out the Gola website if they're (laughs) listening to this or aren't familiar with your shoe, that medallion Jocelyn's talking about sits kind of right on the top of the sandal itself. It's this beautiful circle of sweet grass Mm -hmm. that is very central to the entire design. Yes, yes. I look at my sandal um, as a blank canvas. And the sweetgrass is the art. Hmm. And wow, I really look at it as a, the, it, is, it is a form of art. Hmm. And it's starting to get it's the acknowledgement that I think it deserves, especially from the Smithsonian. Um, the Gibbs Museum here in Charleston has a local sweetgrass exhibit. Um, they are always showcasing uh, sweetgrass basket makers as well. And just Market Street, period, you see all these different sweetgrass basket makers. So all of that factor in with me um, designing this brand, designing this shoe, um, and just letting, bringing awareness and preserving and educating um, this community about the importance of the Gullah Geechee culture and sure. the importance of vast, the sweetgrass baskets. Well, that's powerful. That's my whole mission. That's powerful. So um, where are the medallions themselves, where do they, where do the ones for your shoe come from? Um, so I... Um, the lady who I befriended and who was helping me with my research, she actually fell ill, so she wasn't help. She wasn't able to um, make the medallions for me. But she put me in touch with the whole network of sweetgrass basket makers. Oh, wow. So um, my idea is to 
not only use one basket maker, but use a different basket maker for each style, each wow. each shoe I design, because I want to awesome. showcase and I want to shed light on each one of them. So on my website, there will be a golasweetgrass.com. Check it out. <laughs> yes, please. So on my website, there will be a page that sh- that shines light on each basket maker that I use okay. for my sandals. Okay. Um, and it's so, so cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so... Um, the, the, this lady that I use, same thing. It's been in her family. She is fifth generation, I believe. Okay. Um, and she sells, uh, she sells them as earrings. Oh, wow. The sweet grass circle. So I'm putting them on a shoe. Okay. She's selling them as earrings. Um, or some she makes bangles oh, with them yeah. as well. I like to see it being like a ring or mm-hmm, something. Or a ring. But they're all the rounds is still they're all still a basis for the beginning of the basket. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah. So and you I start can, the basket from the bottom and then you move up around the sides. Yep. Okay. Exactly. And if you ever watch a basket maker, um, they use a spoon. It, you got to go downtown and watch it. They use a spoon, and that's how they're able to take the palm and the pine needles, and they oh. use the spoon to push it in, and okay. then they pull it out. Like you, it's, it's 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 amazing. Yeah, a spoon. That's what they that's, what they use wild. to yeah. keep it tight, to keep it in place while they gra- gather everything up. So it's very, wow. it's it's very very interesting to watch them make these Incredible. baskets. But yeah, that's where um, Gola Sweetgrass is all about. And I want, it's we're just not a sandal brand. Mm-hmm. We are a lifestyle brand. You know okay. what I mean? Like we're, we're just not, I'm just not in the footwear. I want this brand to raise awareness. Um, I also would like for Gola Sweetgrass to bring in a younger market, um, a youth, a more youthful market. And hopefully we can not only, you know, stay regional, I would like to really expand to handbags or other cool. accessories sure. um, I'm focusing on this market because this is you know where where I think it should start okay. but I hope to you know one day expand nationally and hopefully spread this you know this awareness to other states and other countries because <laughs> and I don't mean anything by this but black people are everywhere <laughs> and a lot of during the migration of blacks leaving the south, yeah. going out west, going out north, those uh, and maybe not as prevalent as it is here in the low country, um, but the Gullah Geechee culture is everywhere. Yeah, you diaspora. Know? Yeah, the whole African, the whole diaspora of us, we're everywhere. So I feel like I can touch on those markets outside of the low country of people who have family that are from South Carolina. Like I have a lot of girlfriends um, in Los Angeles whose families may be from Mississippi or New Orleans okay. or, but they've never been to New Orleans, but they know that's where their roots uh, are. Okay. So I have that, I'm kind of have that same sentiment sure. with the Gullah culture. Like you may have aunt's family that's from South Carolina, but your dad's dad moved out to right, Los Angeles. Right, for sure. You know, years ago. And so you may not have a personal connection right. to South Carolina or North Carolina or Georgia or right. Florida, but your roots do. Sure. And what better way to learn, you yes. know, learn about that, you know. And, and meaningfully made products can presumably provide a connection home. Yeah. And perfect. sometimes a more affordable passport than an actual passport. An actual passport, down a plane, yeah. Right? But that might spark an interest to be like, hey, I want to go visit yeah. Charleston. Love you know, it. because... It's a conversation starter. Yes, definitely. About, about yourself and your culture mm-hmm. and your roots. Exactly. As, as you put it. So, oh, yeah. That's yeah. awesome. 
That's fantastic. I mean, where are you? I want to. We'll we'll begin to wrap things up, Jocelyn. Mm -hmm. This has been incredibly enlightening, and man, Mm -hmm. I've got about five hundred more questions for you. I just want to know everything about your story. We'll do a part two if you'll you'll be down for it. Yeah. Um, But until then, there are just a few lingering questions that Mm -hmm. that I'd love to ask. Um, I want to know how you got connected to Low Country Local First and Good Enterprises. And what was your experience like in the Good Enterprises program, particularly given what we now know about mm-hmm. your brand and your company? I mean, how did your entrepreneurial story uh, take shape through the program? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, because I knew that I needed to be in the right spaces to start networking, um, it all started with Eventbrite. So I would mm-hmm. go on Eventbrite. And I'll look up events that are happening in Charleston or happening in Mount Pleasant so I can network, so I can kind of build a type of business relationship or just because I did, you know, I'm coming back after being gone for 20 years. And, you know, Georgetown is not really, mm, it's not really (laughs) not much going on in Georgetown, even though, I mean, it is, it has a lot of promise for economic development Mm because of where Georgetown is. uh, And we can just get the right leadership. I think this city, you know, would explode just like Berkeley County did, just like Dorchester County did. Um, But it just hasn't happened yet. So I knew I wanted to start networking and start attending networking events and things like that. So I was on Eventbrite and I saw an uh, event for information session for a business academy class. And I registered, RSVP'd, um, and went to it, and that's when I met Raquel. So it was the first info session back in 2019 for the Community Business Academy. Okay. And so I attended the info session. Um, I did not know, well, I didn't know anything about Low Country Local First or the nonprofit or anything like that. And so um, I had a feeling that at this point, I'd already ha- I've already developed my sketch. I've right. already developed my business idea. Kind of already did all the technical right, things right, that I right. needed to do. So now it was like, okay, well, I, I know I need to now incorporate this as a business. Mm-hmm. And so the Community Business Academy, um, I applied, I got in, um, and I started attending classes. But what I started noticing is that I was in a class with like-minded individuals, mm-hmm. like-minded people who may be a little bit more in their business, maybe a little less where I'm at in my business. But I just know, I just felt like I was in the right space. And through each lesson, every lesson that I learned, it made me really think about this business. And that's the purpose of the Mm -hmm. Community Business Academy is to give you the tools and the resources to put things that in your mind onto paper. Because everything so far was in my head. Sure. Nothing came out on paper. Right, right. So through each lesson, it was giving me an opportunity to take everything out of my head and put it on paper. Um, And through that, and then once I started learning more about Low Country Local First, through going through these classes, through talking to Raquel, through meeting the board of directors, and at the time, the ED, Jamie, you know, they would come to these classes. I started getting a more understanding of what exactly they were doing, what exactly this uh, academy meant to the community. Got it. And I'm traveling. Well, at this point, I had just moved to Mount Pleasant because I was tired of traveling back and forth to Georgetown. So it was giving me an opportunity to now I'm living in Mount Pleasant. Now I can, you know, I can 
meet people, right. make friends, right. you know, meet establish others, yourself a little establish bit more. myself a little bit more. I don't have to already, you know, always be right. like, oh man, I got to go back already to right. Georgetown. This I is can't. still just pre-COVID. So this is pre-COVID. things are not locked down yeah, yet. Things are not all the way are down. happening. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, a lot of times if I wanted to do something and it was at night, I'd be like, oh my God, I got to drive all the way back to Georgetown, which will stop me. Sure. But once I moved to Mount Pleasant, moved to Charleston, I was like, okay, well now I'm, I'm free to do a little bit more now because I don't have to worry about driving back at night to truck to back to uh, Georgetown Um, and so through this through the class it really started helping me develop my business Um, like I said I was already working on the creative side and the production side but through the class it made me focus more on the business side and each lesson was something that I needed to do that I was not doing you know I was not doing my competitive uh, target market or my SWOT analysis, I was still working on design and working on the sketching, sure. you know, and working on that aspect of getting a shoe. But the point, why would I be doing all of that if I don't have the business part, right. you know, done? Yeah. Like, I'm going to do make this shoe and then now I don't have anything, you know, yeah. to set up for my business. But they're symbiotic. Or yeah. You focus too much on the business part. It's like, <laughs> but what are you selling? Yeah. Like, go, go fix the thing you're selling first. So you had the thing. Mm-hmm. It was ready to go. Yeah. And now you're kind of familiarizing yourself with some of the lexicon of, of, of business. Yeah. Okay. And I and so at the end of the twelve week program, you get a business coach, and I knew that okay, a business coach would definitely keep me on target, keep mm. me on prop, keep me progressing. Sure. Um, and for ten bucks a month, hell yeah! Like yeah. I, you know, no business brainer. coaches can be one hundred fifty, two hundred dollars an hour. You know, if you get some get with a good company, and so through the Community Business Academy, I received the business coach. And Jeff was my business coach for so for 90 days. I had him for 90 days mm-hmm. and I knew, okay, I'm going to have to make the most of this. Yeah, for this is Jeff days. Plotner of Brackish Bowties. We had a conversation with him a couple months ago. He's also a board member. Yep. So he became my um, coach and immediately he was uh, intrigued. He was very interested in what I was trying to do because once I said go to, you know, sweet grass sure. and a sandal, you know, he's also in the retail industry. He yeah. creates, he produces right. his own uh, product as well. He also didn't come from the traditional background mm-hmm. of design school, exactly. but yet sells something mm-hmm. in the fashion industry. Yeah. So I understood why um, Raquel, the program director, uh, put me with him. When I when I saw Jeff and I saw his name, I went to his website and I was just like, oh, yeah. Yeah, makes sense. This makes sense. This makes a lot more sense for me. So for 90 days, Jeff helped me come up with a 90-day action plan. Okay. He figured out where I was in my business, and he used the resources and connections that he has to put me in a trajectory of where I needed to go in those 90 days. Got it. So although I had the sketch, although I had everything kind of ready, I had no factory. And so that was the space I couldn't get to that part I couldn't okay. get there sure. within a year of me you know researching and so that's I think that's why I focus so much on the design part mm-hmm. of it because I had not had an idea a clue of who's going to produce the shoe I see. and so entering the community business academy helped me it helped me on the business side but it helped me to figure out things like the target market like okay. Which would help me figure out what would be the best place to produce the shoe based on my cost, based on on the cost of making it. Um, And so when I met Jeff and for uh, three months, every Tuesday at 12 o'clock, 
we would, well, one, uh, the second Tuesday of every month we would meet on my lunch hour. And he pretty much had a piece of paper and he's like, okay, well, where are you on this? Where are you on that? Yep. And that's pretty much what our first meeting was about. We were, we were in a session, I think, for an hour and a half. Like, I went over my lunch period. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Jeff, this is, I said, let me be quick and be honest with you. I have no money. I had this idea. I have this passion. What can we do? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so he says, well, he said, do you have, can you, can you create a budget? I said, I got $2,500. That's the most I can put in. Yeah. And so he pretty much was like, all right, well, I have this guy, Ian, and he um, is in Guatemala. I have used him for a few of my productions, uh-huh. um, and I'm going to put you in touch with him. Wow. He just did a, a what we call in banking a warm transfer. So he mm-hmm. did an email, but he introduced who I was to yes. Ian and everything like that. We call that a warm transfer. Yeah, so, um, so clinical in the, in the banking world. <laughs> Versus a cold transfer. Or which transfer is what initiated. <laughs> Basically, you press the button and then they all get connected. <laughs> um, so yeah, he 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 saw where I was and what I what I needed help with. Sure. Which is what any good business coach to identify what your pro- um, uh, problems are and then yeah. try to create opportunities for you to to solve that. Yeah, that's amazing that yeah. he made that connection. So he put me in touch with Ian. Um, being that I was so green, I didn't really know much about the production of a shoe. Um, just what I was trained to know, but not really a true life experience right, of it. Right. Um, just what I learned in school. Um, and so Ian uh, was very patient with me in each step, sourcing for the leather, sourcing for the soles, sourcing for you know, like he took his time with me on everything that we that I that we did. And then COVID happens. Hmm. Yeah, that <laughs> and, must have thrown everything off course. Everything came to a stop, like everything. Yep. You know now. Well, we spoke with Jeff, and he was—I mean, he was probably dealing with. Uh, I mean, we know from chatting with him that yeah. there were a number of issues and obstacles and opportunities he was kind of grappling with in real time. So I'd imagine yeah. that your connections with him became either mm-hmm. less frequent or less. Yeah, they became uh, less frequent, but we would still email. Still back connected a little bit. Okay. Yeah, he would still send me an email, say, "Hey, how's it going sure. with Ian? Have I'm you good. talked to Ian? You know, like he was still checking. We were still checking, mm-hmm. but everything came to a stop. And so it then became a time of what's more important for me right now and that's being safe mm-hmm. and that's making sure that I'm staying safe because you know when COVID came there were so many unknowns yes um, and so I just really took that time uh, to focus on myself um, understand where we are in this world a lot of reflecting on me mm-hmm. a lot of reflection on what what I have accomplished so far but then still frustration because I was I was like on a roll. I was right. like, you know. Yeah, and then you I hit was, the stumbling block. Yeah. And you got momentum the, and then yeah. all of a sudden you know, wow. And then the whole world shuts down. Right. Like down. And then I was like, okay, well, now I'm worried about my nine to five job. Like, mm-hmm. oh, shucks. Like, what if we, we don't have no patients and our patients are 65 and up. And right. so, you know, my um, doctor, he had to close the office down for a couple of weeks when the sure. country shut down. Yeah. So going through that has really, really, really taught me the importance of just keep, just yeah. got to keep going. Sure. You have to keep moving. Don't give up. Because if I would have given up then, I, 
Yeah. Don't know if, you know, that unknown probably would have just been my horror for the rest of my life. Totally. Yeah, because, you know, don't get me wrong, throughout all of this of what I've talked about, um, I've wanted to give up many, many times. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah, I've wanted to be like, okay, well, I'm just going to do this nine to five job and, you know, just keep contributing to my retirement income. And, you know, in 30 years, I'll be able to retire. Because that's now yeah. referring back to what right. my upbringing was. Um, but I don't know. I just I just was like, once this country started opening up a little bit more, mm-hmm. and it started to give me a little hope, but still I was like, well, can I do this? Can I still do this? Can I still do this? Right. But lo and behold, Community Business Academy Raquel's <laughs> program director. Um, she would check in with me periodically, too. And, you know, Raquel, we would get on the phone and just talk, 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 or just meet and talk, 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 Mm -hmm. talk, talk. And so I had a conversation with her because her boyfriend was a patient at my office that I worked at, the doctor's office I worked at. So one day she came in as a driver Mm -hmm. for him because he was getting a surgery, I mean, getting a procedure done. And so she was asking me about, you know, everything, Jeff, blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah, blah. And so I was just like, you know, Raquel, I, I just don't know anymore because... I don't know where to go now because things are shut down. Right. You know, there's a lot of risk now. All you know, just things. I just didn't know how to put all of this into pers- in the, into a, a perspective where I can move forward and and still pursue my goals. And I, and so I said. And at that time, I was kind of getting tired of working in a doctor's office. And so I had a conversation with her, and I was just like, you know, I'm really looking for something where I can really, really feel like I'm giving back, really feel like um, my experiences and my testimony can really change and influence someone. And so just a general conversation. I was not looking for anything. We were, I was just chatting it up with her at the doctor's sure. office. Three weeks later, she texts me and says, hey, CT is leaving. Um, I remember the conversation that we had at the the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. Do you want to come in and apply for this position? And I was like, hell yeah. Yeah. C.T. Burton is our former program coordinator for Good Enterprises. Yeah. and So So you find out there's an opening at LLF. Find out there's an opening at LLF. I immediately, like, I pounced. I pounced on it. I was like, Raquel. And then she told me about you guys moving to this new space and, and everything like that. Well, your reaction time uh, for anything, presumably, has been honed from your lifetime of being an entrepreneur who's always looking to move quickly yeah. towards the next opportunity. Yeah. Um, it's funny you say that because I was in a, a workshop uh, last night, and that was one of the things that she talked about, being agile, hmm. being able to move quickly. Yep. To think on your feet, sure. To not, you know, right. let the chaos, yeah. the chaos around you, not for you to to, to really, you know, lean towards right. that or to or soak that in. Rebound. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so, I I immediately was like, I immediately texted her back. I was like, Where are you? I'll come meet you now. She's like, Come to Local Works. I'll we'll we'll be here or whatever. Yeah. And so this is come full circle for me because sure. this is an organization that put me in a space where I needed to be to get me to the next level. And that space was meeting Jeff. Jeff put me in touch with Ian. Ian put me in touch with Martine, who is my shoemaker. And then me having the opportunity in June to go to Guatemala 
and see my production and meet me in, in person. Because before, you know, we were just doing WhatsApp and, and, and Google Meets. So what better way to um, show my gratitude and show my appreciation for this organization than coming back and sharing my experiences and sharing my knowledge that I've learned to other students that I was just them two years ago. Yeah, wow. So when I learned of CT was leaving and then I had a conversation conversation with CT and then that same day, uh, Jeff stopped by and I had never seen Jeff in person. Um, it was always through Google Meets. Uh-huh. Um, Jackie was the new ED, yeah. so I got a chance to meet Jackie. So all of that, um, I say all of that to say that now I'm in a position where I can really relate to the students in the class because I've been there mm-hmm. and I'm still there with them. Yeah. And although there may be some things that I'm more um, experienced in, um, taking chances, making bold moves, um, realizing that I have to always remain, not always, but realizing the cool calmness that I that I maintain mm-hmm. around chaos that has been happening in the last 18 months in this country. Um, now I have an opportunity to give back in a way that I'm passionate about. And that's helping other people start their businesses yep. because um, the importance of the local economy. And like I said, you know, speaking of my upbringing, coming from Georgetown, my grandmother served her community. That's just where I was, you know, how I came up. She was a nurse. Um, she was part of the kitchen angels at a church. The sick and shut-in. She would go cook for the sick and shut-in. Or um, on Saturdays, she'll have all these to-go trays to go take to people who are in nursing homes mm-hmm. who don't see their family often. So all of those things that I watch her doing, now I have an opportunity to kind of do that in the same way, and that is serve my community. I'm getting a little... Because I just, you know, very passionate about this. Well, yeah, your passion. Emotional yeah, about that. Your passion comes um, through. Yeah. Um, I yeah. mean, your, yours is a story uh, among among many things. It's a story of fortitude and, and meaning and mm-hmm. passion. And when the rubber hits the road, it's very obvious that you have found an incredibly agile way to turn dreams and aspirations into products and and uh, initiatives that are truly like moving the the social needle and yeah. and, the, and 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 are connecting folks mm-hmm. to what's important which mm-hmm. is home and home. culture and mm-hmm. community yeah. and to emerge from a time where those things were tougher than ever to uh, identify mm-hmm. and connect with meaningfully and to mm-hmm. turn around and make your company built on those very pillars mm-hmm. is incredible. And so we, we truly, uh, it's not just a line when I say everyone here at LLF really congratulates you and admires your story, Jocelyn. And yeah, for folks listening, yeah, no, you're welcome. It's the truth for folks listening. And, and first of all, we're, we're, we're tying it up. Now. We're, we're, we're closing it up now. But man, we've got to do another conversation yeah, because we got to talk more. I want to I want to dial more into COVID and find yeah. out where you are now, what you're going to be doing in 10 yeah. years. So let, yeah. if you're up for it, I'd love to chat again. But yes, yes, for yes. folks listening, um, please, please, please. I know you're interested in, in learning more. So check mm-hmm. out, as I mentioned at the top, Gola Sweetgrass's website. And what is that website again, uh, Jocelyn? The website name uh, is golasweetgrass.com. G-O-L-A-S-W-E-E-T. 
G-R-A-S-S.com. Excellent. Perfect. And you can find out more about Jocelyn's story. You can find out more about Gola Sweetgrass. And of course, you can purchase some of her products and just keep up to date with uh, with what's going on in her world and in Gola's world. Uh, Jocelyn, thank you so much thank again for being for here. Thank you for having me. I yes. really enjoyed it. And I can't wait to come back. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. That sounds good. I'm going to hold you to that. And mm-hmm. I'm sure I'll see you very soon. Yes. Primarily because we work very close to each other <laughs> in the same room. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Jocelyn. Thank you. Take care. This has been a production of Low Country Local First. Please learn more about how you can support Low Country Local First, or if you're a local independent business owner yourself, how you can join our organization as a member by traveling to our website at lowcountrylocalfirst.org. If you'd like to join, you can go right to lowcountrylocalfirst.org slash join. All your membership dollars, sponsorship dollars, funds raised for the organization. Go to all of our programs, again, one of which is Small Talks, Big Ideas with Steve. I'm your host, Steve Fletcher. Theme song is by The Shingles. I'll see you all next month. Take care.